Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. Hello, my name's Matt Clacker. Recently, we were lucky enough to have Eli Pariser come into Penguin and speak to us about his new book, The Filter Bubble, What the Internet is Hiding from You. If you're at all interested in online privacy or the dilemmas involved in having companies like Google and Facebook tailor your internet landscape for you, we can't recommend the book enough. Eli's Filter Bubble is a concept that's about to change the way you think about the internet, or at least it certainly changed the way we do. Here's our own Joe Pickering to introduce Eli. Hi everybody, everybody, thanks for coming. Uh, I'm Joe Pickering, I work in the Publicity Department in Penguin General Division, and we're here today to hear from Eli Pariser, who is over from the States to tell us about uh, his new book, The Filter Bubble, What the Internet is Hiding from You, uh, which Viking published on Thursday. Uh, he's going to give us a kind of flavor of the ideas in it and the warnings and the freaky stats. Um, and then there'll be time for some questions. Um, we have a few free copies over there. Uh, don't tell, don't believe anybody tells you don't get anything like this life for free, apart from half an hour and some sandwiches. Uh, so the people that win the bun fight get some of those. I'm sure Eli will be happy to sign them. Um, a bit about Eli. Uh, in 2001, when he was just 20, uh, he started a website calling for a multilateral response to the September 11th attacks. Um, within a few weeks, he'd had half a million signatures and kind of decided he needed to join forces with uh, organization. Um, and so he joined forces with moveon.org, which is a liberal public policy advocacy group. Uh, he's now board president there. Um, he's done lots of work with uh, various online initiatives and campaigns um, and work that he did between 2004 and 2006 uh, fed in a lot to uh, the Obama presidential campaign, uh, which I think is uh, a great indication of the amazing work that they've done. Um, he has been named three times on the Details Annual Power List. Um, and uh, at the end of last year, he gave a TED Talk, which, as I'm sure many of you will know, is a really prestigious, one of the world's most prestigious series of speaking engagements to 3,000 people. Um, that was before he spoke here. Uh, so uh, um, I'm sure that none of you have missed the headlines about internet privacy. They're all over the Metro, the Guardian, the Daily Mail from Apple, Facebook, Google. Um, what the filter bubble does is it tells you why these companies want your information, just how much of it they have, and um, kind of what we should be aware of and what this means for us as individuals and as members of society. Uh, Andrew Mars already said, credited it with giving us, inventing a new phrase for uh, arguments about the internet and our online experience. And Brian Appiard in Sunday Times Culture this weekend said that the book will, as the kids say, creep you out. Uh, I turned 30 recently, so I have no idea if that's what the kids say. But I think if they read this, then they probably will. So, Eli Pariser. So, uh, let me start by saying thank you for publishing my book. Uh, and I'm here to convince you that it was not a mistake. Um, I uh, uh, grew up in a very small town in Maine, a kind of rural state in northern New England in the United States, and, and um, it, it was a town of 900 people, and uh, 
growing up, I sort of, I got Wired magazines and I read about the internet and I imagined, I, I dreamed about this medium that would connect me with people far outside of my little town. Uh, you know, people very different from me in different continents and, and introduced me to different ways of thinking. And more recently, I've begun to wonder whether the internet is actually uh, going to do that, whether it's actually as connective as we thought. So the first place that I started thinking about this uh, actually uh, was when I logged on one morning to my Facebook page. And uh, on this particular morning, I had just finished sort of a several-month uh, campaign of befriending uh, people who thought differently from me. I really wanted to know some people who were not on the same page politically and hear what they were posting and see what they were commenting on and learn a thing or two. Um, but uh, I noticed something strange on my Facebook page when I, when I loaded it up, which was that um, my conservative friends were, were missing. Uh, they, they weren't there anywhere. And as it turned out, without consulting me about it, Facebook had been looking at what I was doing on the website. They had been looking on which links I had clicked on and which ones I hadn't, which things I had liked and which things I hadn't. And it had noticed that while I said that I wanted to hear from these conservative people, actually I was more interested or I was, I was clicking more on the links that my more progressive friends were posting. So without asking me about it, it edited them out and they disappeared. And um, this got me thinking uh, because this kind of algorithmic editing is actually moving very quickly across the web. It's embedded in more and more websites. And I began to wonder why. And um, so I did a little, I, so I started doing some, some research. I started digging into this. And the best place to start in sort of explaining where this phenomenon is coming from um, is with a statistic that Eric Schmidt from Google likes to uh, talk about, which is um, that if you take all of the information that was created uh, from the beginning of human society to now, every conversation, every letter, every painting, uh, and you were to translate that into digital bytes, it would be about five exabytes. That's about 80 million, uh, uh, 80 million uh, iPod touches with, it, with it 80 gigs of space. So five exabytes of data between the beginning of human society and 2010. And the problem is that that same amount of data was created in the last three days. So there's this enormous uh, deluge of data, deluge of information uh, that we have to sort through right now. And um, because, and, and so people have been looking for sort of shortcuts to that. How do you filter through that information and find the little bits of gold in this fast running stream? And um, as it turns out, there's a very, uh, th there's a method that can work a lot of the time. Um, we're, we're all familiar with it now from Amazon. Uh, it's, if you like this, you'll like that. And if you like this, you'll like that is, uh, you know, basically uh, a way of statistically looking at what groups of people have similar preferences and what groups of uh, objects or articles or books or whatever uh, are preferred by the same kinds of people. You can sort of work it from both um, ends. And what's interesting about this is that you can begin to get, uh, I you can begin to find uh, sort of uh, indications 
about who someone is in pieces of data that don't appear to reveal uh, anything about them in particular. You can find out things about someone uh, that you would never guess you were revealing uh, just by saying, I like this thing or I like that thing. So for example, um, in the United States, if you prefer milk versus wine, you're more likely to be conservative politically. <laughs> or uh, if you never eat fast food, you're almost certain to be, or, or you're much more likely to be a liberal. Or uh, if you list uh, the big Lebowski on your dating profile, you're probably a white man. <laughs> or, uh, you know, and, and people can probably guess this one, but, uh, you know, if you like the, the Wizard of Oz, then there's another movie that you're very likely to like, um, of course, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Uh, <laughs> And so you can draw these correlations between pieces of data that seem to have very little to do with each other. You can say these things group together. Um, and sometimes these are very sort of far-flung pieces of data. You can say this person's desktop is cluttered with icons, therefore they're 12% more likely to be politically liberal. That's actually true. You can, find, you can draw this data out of seemingly far-flung places. And in fact, this can be so powerful that with five data points about someone, and it's a particular five data points, you can then guess almost any of their other preferences with an 80% accuracy rate. Any other product, any other uh, food taste, you can guess again with an 80% accuracy rate, four, four times out of five. And in fact, uh, if you uh, know that I am friends with two people, and those two people have uh, given me their five data points, and I haven't, you can still actually guess my preferences with an 80% accuracy rate. In other words, our privacy isn't even, uh, you know, sort of solely in our control anymore. Our friends are revealing things about us uh, in their actions as well. So uh, the company that has used this uh, technique to the, to the best effect, um, or to the sort of most large-scale effect anyway, uh, is Google. And many people don't see this at work, but since December of 2009, Google doesn't actually give us all the same results. If you Google something and I Google something, we may see very different things, even at the same time, the exact same search query. And in fact, there is no sort of standard Google anymore. There is no um, uh, you know, objective Google we all see different things. And when I first had about, heard about this, I actually kind of found it hard to believe. So I asked some friends to Google Egypt earlier this year and send me screenshots of what they received. So here's my friend Scott's screenshot of Googling Egypt. And here's my friend Daniel's screenshot. And they're fairly similar people. They're both men. They're both Caucasian. They live in New York. Their political views are fairly aligned. But the two of them actually saw very different results. You don't even have to read the results in order to see how different these two pages are that they got at the same time. But when you do read the results, you see something very interesting, which is that Scott got all sorts of information about the crisis in Egypt, about the protests, about what was happening there politically, and Daniel got nothing, nothing at all. 
about the protests in Egypt in the first page of results. So the thing that's driving this for Google is this idea of relevance. And relevance is really the core sort of watchword uh, that all of these companies are trying to do. They're trying to engineer relevance. How do you find the relevant information? And the idea that they have about relevance is very simple, which is relevance is the thing that you're going to click the first. How do we predict uh, click, click first? How do we predict uh, which results you're most likely to click? Um, now, engineering relevance, when you're talking about information, is much harder than doing if you like this, if you like that, then you'll like that with products. It's one thing to do, you know, you like uh, Lord of the Rings, so you'll like Lord of the Rings 2. Uh, it's harder to do, you like this fact, so you'll like that fact. But that's actually what Google's trying to do. And in order to do that well, they suck up a massive amount of data from each of us. The top 50 internet sites place, on average, about 64 tracking cookies and personal tracking code uh, on our computers. Uh, that's 64 of these cookies per website for the top 50 websites. And they, they vacuum this information up, and then actually they can sell it to each other. So there's something called a, a behavior market. Uh, if I click on a website over here, that indicates something about me, about who I am, and that actually can become a commodity that is sold to a website over here in milliseconds. It literally takes about uh, a hundredth of a second uh, to sell that information for money to this website, which can then use it to customize what I see. So kind of without our even knowing it, the web is sort of whispering behind our back. It's sharing information back and forth between websites that seem not to have anything to do with each other. And um, the people in these companies are very bullish about this. So Sheryl Sandberg, this second in command at Facebook, says that uh, within a few years, uh, it's likely that a website that doesn't customize or tailor itself to its user in some individualized way is going to be anachronistic. Kaplan Bhatt from Yahoo says uh, the future of the internet is, the future of the web is about personalization. And Eric Schmidt, who until recently was the Google CEO, says it'll be very hard for people to watch or consume something that has not in some sense been tailored for them. But I think actually Mark Zuckerberg sort of put it best. And without intending to, he kind of highlighted the challenge, the problem with this sort of push towards the perfectly relevant web, which is that he said someone was asking him about uh, the Facebook newsfeed and what was so great about the Facebook newsfeed. And Zuckerberg said, a squirrel dying in your front yard may be more relevant to your interests right now than people dying in Africa. And I want to talk about what a web based on that idea of, that idea of relevance uh, might look like. So to recap, increasingly online, we see the world that we want to see. We see the world that we're likely to click. Increasingly, we're surrounded by this sort of membrane of personalized filters at Netflix and Amazon and Huffington Post and Yahoo News, Google News, and so on. And uh, wherever we go, this is increasingly harder to escape because our personal data actually travels with us. And what that means is that increasingly, we live in a filter bubble, in 
uh, inside uh, uh, this membrane, we live in a personal, unique universe of information. And we don't choose what gets edited in to that, to that universe. We don't choose what makes it through those filters. But what that means is that we don't see what's being edited out, which is all this stuff in, in a normal version of the PowerPoint would disappear. Um, so uh, it, you might say, well, we've always done this. We've always sought out uh, pieces of information. We've always sought out news sources that reflect our own views or that confirm our own biases. How is this really different? This is just kind of the automation of a trend that's been going on since the beginning of media. But I think it is different for three reasons, which is uh, it's unique, it's invisible, and it's passive. So it's unique because unlike other media experiences where you always were experiencing the set of media with an audience, when you read a magazine, there's another group of people that, that sees that same exact sort of curated set of articles. This is, a, is your own personal media universe. It's, it's different from your neighbors or from your friends, from anyone else. You're going to see a different view of the world. It's invisible, um, and that makes a big difference because uh, when you choose to read a magazine with a certain viewpoint, if I pick up The Economist, then I know what the editorial viewpoint of The Economist is, and I can guess what's being edited in and what's being edited out. But when you load up Google or you turn on Facebook or you go to Yahoo News, you don't know who those sites think you are, and therefore you don't know on what basis they're editing information and what you're missing. As Donald Rumsfeld likes to say, it's an unknown unknown. And uh, the final issue is one of choice. You know, it's one thing uh, to sort of seek out a personalized filter, but increasingly, this is sort of the internet becoming a more passive medium. It's the internet kind of giving us information home delivery unless in instead of requiring us to go out and search for it. And I think that actually really changes the dynamics of this because um, it, it, it's always on, it, it's increasingly hard to escape. So I want to talk about three problems that this filter bubble creates. And the first is one that I call the uh, distortion problem. And uh, it, this is basically the problem that uh, one of the most dangerous situations that you can be in is to think that you have a good view of the world and actually have a distorted view. And in a way, when this is happening invisibly, when things are being edited on your behalf based on your personal information without your personal knowledge, that's exactly what you're going to get. Um, you're more likely to see the things that you like because uh, you're more likely to click those things. And uh, the psychology behind this is becoming increasingly clear. Uh, we know that uh, when we're presented with information that confirms what we already thought were true, was true. There's a little sort of burst of pleasure that most of us have in our brains. We, we really like that, being told that we're right. And conversely, when we're told that we're wrong, uh, it makes almost everyone cranky to be presented with information that suggests that we may not have all of the answers or that we may be incorrect about something that we passionately believe. And so the question is, if you're a website that is just trying to provide as many page views as possible, as many clicks as possible, and to keep people coming back again and again. And if you can engineer it so that people get more and more of those bursts of pleasure, why would you ever show them the stuff that makes them unhappy, that makes them cranky? 
Um, the other piece of this distortion problem is that we're less likely to think to see things that are important, but not perhaps very sexy, not very uh, uh, sort of easily clickable. And the way I like to think about this is with the like button. So Facebook uh, is now a medium that one in 11 human beings use. It's a massively popular medium. And the way that you propagate information across Facebook uh, is with the like button. Now, the like button has a very particular valence. It's not a neutral phrase. It's a positive phrase. And that means that it's easy to click like on uh, I baked a cake or I ran a marathon. And it's hard to click like on civil war breaks out in the Congo. And so there are certain kinds of information that make it across Facebook very quickly and other kinds of information that may not make it at all. And it means that those things drop out of view. We don't see those things as much uh, in our Facebook feed. So the second problem is one that uh, Dana Boyd, an anthropologist who studies the internet, called the psychological equivalent of obesity. And the best way to sort of get a handle on this problem is to look at uh, the, some research that was done about behavior in people's Netflix feed. I think in the UK there's another uh, love film is kind of a, a very similar uh, service. Um, but uh, you know what, what these researchers noticed is that um, some movies, you know, people would add movies to their queue and they would get the movies in the order that the queue suggested. And some movies they would move very quickly to the top of the queue. People would keep moving them up and up and up so that they could get them more quickly. And other movies uh, would just sort of dawdle around uh, in the queue for a very long time. And so they noticed that Iron Man you know, just went straight out to people's houses very quickly, a matter of days, and waiting for Superman, this documentary about uh, the education system, you know, would just spend a long time <laughs> wandering around before it got there. And uh, they decided to graph these movies in terms of the amount of time they spent uh, before they got out to people's houses. And as it turns out, there were sort of two very distinct clusters that emerged. So the movies that moved very quickly, the Iron Mans, those were want movies. And it was uh, the movies that, you know, you come home after a long day at work, you just want to be entertained and just put something on that's easy and fun. Um, you know, the, the, those movies all clustered together at the short end of the spectrum. And you can probably guess what the cluster was on the longer end of the spectrum, right? You know, this is documentary films, uh, Holocaust movies, and French cinema, <laughs> right? So what they realized was that there was something actually kind of profound going on here, which is that, uh, you know, there was sort of this, this internal tug of war underway, this internal battle between two inner selves. And, uh, you know, it was a battle between sort of a more compulsive uh, present self and a more sort of aspirational long-term self because we all want to have been people who watched French cinema, but right now we want to watch Ace Ventura for the fifth <laughs> time. And, you know, so the best media actually, you know, sort of gives us a bit of both. It gives us some Justin Bieber and some Afghanistan. Uh, it helps balance those two competing inner selves. But in the filter bubble, because it's only looking at what you click first, it's likely to just sort out 
the things that are sort of the most compulsively short-term clickable. And so it's like, as opposed to getting a sort of balanced information diet in the regular media where you get some information vegetables and some information dessert, you end up in, with just kind of information junk food. You, you, you might not even know that the healthy stuff was out there. So uh, the final issue is one of control. And uh, there was a, a paper that sort of solidified this for me by a guy named Yochai Benkler, who's a brilliant information theorist. Um, it was called Of Amish Children, Of Sirens and Amish Children. And uh, the title is very lyrical. The paper itself is about 95 pages of complex legal uh, you know, uh, uh, theory that I waded through. But it, the basic uh, question in that paper was uh, about agency. And it revolved around a legal case in which Amish parents uh, wanted to uh, take their children out of the public school system so that they wouldn't be exposed to modern life. And the question was, could you do that? Could you shield your kids from seeing modern life? And, and what the paper argues is that if you want to have free people, if you want to preserve this idea of agency, then you really can't because you can't be said to have chosen something unless you know what the alternative options were, even if you don't think that you're going to be interested in those options. That agency is a function of being able to sort of see what the options are and then self-determine you know, where you're going to go. And that if you shield people, if you put blinders on them so that they can't see the other options, then you're really depriving them of some basic kind of idea of freedom. And I think at its worst, that's what can happen here, that we're giving over that control to an algorithm to decide which options we see and which ones we don't, and that the algorithm actually doesn't necessarily have our best interests at heart. It's trying to serve its advertisers, not necessarily us, not necessarily you know, make us better human beings. And so um, you know, it makes me a little concerned when Eric Schmidt says, as he does recently, that what people want is for Google to tell them what to do next. Or when Larry Page says uh, that the goal of Google is to provide a, a, a perfect search engine, and what a perfect search engine would do is give one link, the right one. Because that makes sense when you're Googling your dentist's phone number. There's one right answer to that. When you're Googling climate change, or you're Googling Barack Obama, or you're Googling some more complex thing, it really doesn't make sense, and it can be very dangerous. So what this all suggested to me was that, uh, you know, the, the, the way that I had of uh, thinking about the internet was kind of wrong at a basic level. I, I had bought the mythology that uh, there was sort of this, you know, the, the sort of old broadcast society in which uh, editors and producers acted as gatekeepers and controlled the flows of information. And that was kind of a bad thing because they often tended to be elites and they often tended to have uh, sort of uh, uh, alliances with political power. And the internet came along and it swept that all away. All of a sudden, we could all uh, talk to each other, communicate together, um, and, uh, it, you know, and, and power was decentralized. And what I realized is, uh, that that's not really what happened. It's not that we live in a gatekeeperless society. There's a new set of gatekeepers, and they're not people, they're code. And 
so, you know, the code does the same things uh, that the 20th century gatekeepers did. It sits between us and the world. It decides what we see and what we don't see. It makes value judgments about which pieces of information are important, but it doesn't have built into it the sense of ethics that the 20th century gatekeeping system did. It doesn't have that sense of this is civically important or, uh, you know, people need to see this even though they might disagree with it. Um, it's trying to do something much more narrow. And I think if we're going to rely on these algorithms in part to do this work of deciding what we see and what we don't see in the world, then we need to make sure that they show us not just what's relevant, but also what's important and what's challenging and other points of view and a diversity of opinion. We need to make sure that they show us the big picture. Um, you know, one of the conversations that happens around this is, you know, typically when I sort of get to this point in the argument, people say, well, that's algorithmic paternalism. You're injecting into the algorithms this uh, set of values, and who's going to decide what those values are? And, and you know, isn't this just imposing on people, uh, you know, a, a set of views? And I, I don't think, you know, that that's the correct sort of way to look at um, algorithmic paternalism. The fact is that there already is a set of values built into Google search results. It's impossible to have a ranked list of results for Barack Obama and not be making some judgments about what constitutes truth or what constitutes value in that context. That's what those, that's why people trust the search engine in the first place. And uh, I think actually what's sort of the more dangerous form of paternalism is when you have uh, Facebook saying, well, yes, you said explicitly that you wanted to hear from these people who are different from you, but we're going to overrule that and show you only people who are similar to you because that serves our interests of uh, getting more page views better. That to me is sort of the more dangerous uh, choice because it's actually taking control away from us and placing it in the hands of, of these companies. So uh, at this point I kind of refer back to uh, an early com um, computer scientist uh, named uh, Kranzberg uh, and his first law, I don't actually know what his other laws were, but his first law is great, which is uh, the technology is neither good nor evil, nor is it neutral. And I think that's the thing to keep in mind, that these platforms have valences to them. They influence what information we get and what information we don't. And there's no way, in fact, to build a neutral information service. So, uh, it, you know, the, the web, I think, is, is uh, changing. And um, that's not just my view, that's also the view of the guy who created it, Tim Berners-Lee, who wrote recently in Scientific American that the web as we know it is being threatened. Some of its most successful inhabitants have begun to chip away at its principles. And I think, you know, the, the challenge here is that we really need the internet to be as good as we hoped it would be. We need it to be that connective medium that actually really introduces us to new ideas and to new people and to new ways of thinking. And um, in order for it to do that, it has to, uh, it, you know, it, it has to actually sort of connect us to things far beyond our sort of own narrow set of uh, most clickable interests. It has to introduce us to the wider world. And it's not going to do that uh, if it leaves us stuck in a bubble of one. So, thank you.
I think uh, it, it is a, it's sort of a question of what the standard is that we hold these companies to. Um, and uh, I think to the point that, you know, some people would say, well, they're commercial, they'll never have any kind of sense of civic values. And it, a, as you point out, you know, it actually has been the case that in modern societies, we have held the institutions that provide the population with information to a higher standard and expected them not just to put on the front page what is going to sell the most copies, but actually also what informs citizens as well. Um, and, you know, I actually did some research for the book into sort of how that transition came about. And, you know, it, it happened in the United States after World War I when there was a very successful um, propaganda effort in which all of the newspapers were uh, happily participating. And after the war, people sort of, it left a bad taste in, in everyone's mouth because uh, the, it had been so effective in shaping public opinion that people realized that this was sort of, it, it was like a bug in the democratic system. If you could just manipulate the press, you know, you, you wouldn't really have a democracy that was worth the name. And so, uh, you know, a set of critics came up at that point and said, well, we really need these institutions to sort of serve uh, civic life well and uh, and and uh, you know give people information they need to be good citizens and really it was through that sort of public browbeating more than through any kind of institutional reform I mean or you know that's what caused the institutional reform it wasn't from a from a regulatory reform that that ethics started to be embedded into a lot of those institutions so I think in a way you know we're sort of back in 1921 on the web with these new set of institutions that have grown very quickly, sort of faster than they can contemplate their own responsibilities, and we need to call on them to actually live up to that standard. Yeah. So I, I had a conversation with a, with a Google engineer about this, and uh, he said there are actually 57 different variables that without being logged in, uh, Google tracks about people. So um, everything from, uh, you know, what kind of computer is it? What kind of software are you running? Uh, where are you logging in from? What's the IP address? Uh, how big have you set your fonts? That turns out to be a really good one. Uh, are you hovering over links for a long time? If you are, Google actually tracks that as well. So uh, it's very, you know, it, it, it can get a lot uh, even you know, if you're opening up a brand new computer and, and putting it on your desk. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, in a couple ways. I mean, first is just, I, I sort of know more what queries to expect Google to work for and which ones 
to be a little less trusting. I mean, I think for that sort of information extraction purpose, the dentist phone number purpose, personalization is great because you really don't want any dentist phone number. You want your dentist phone number, you know. Uh, or if you're Googling pizza, it'll find pizza places that you've clicked on before. Um, but, uh, you know, when you're, when you're trying to get sort of that sense of here's a map of the lay of the land, it's just not as good a tool for that as you would hope. And I sort of try to uh, use Wikipedia and, you know, sort of other sources to kind of triangulate off. Um, as far as Facebook's concerned, you know, I've, it has a, I, I have actually shifted my behavior more towards uh, Twitter because it allows you that sort of kind of control that Facebook doesn't over what you see and what you don't see. I, I don't miss my conservative friends on Twitter. Uh, I do still not see them on Facebook. So, um, yeah, it has, a, a, you know, and it's, it's just a useful reminder to me that, like, when I'm getting sort of too stuck in a rut of a certain set of information choices, yeah, I sort of try to, try to get out of that a little bit in a way. And that's been actually very rewarding, you know, when I when I make myself do it, it my my long term self is happy, even if my short term self is annoyed. <laughs> yeah, Jeff. So I would say Google um, has grappled with it relatively sincerely. I've had, you know, they're ranging from engineers who are really excited about figuring out cool ways of solving this problem to people who see the product a little differently but want to explain it to you know they, they really I think they since the people I've talked to at Google sincerely sort of would like to be good in this way and at the same time have a top management that's focused on well what are the projects that are really gonna actually make billions of dollars um, and this is not in the immediate term one that will probably. Um, Facebook, I think, has been entirely different. Uh, I, I was, they, they basically have stonewalled on the whole issue, not just not returning my media requests, but in fact not returning any media requests at all related to the book from the Wall Street Journal and the New York Times and other outlets that just aren't talking about it. Um, and I did have one conversation with engineer there who's fairly high up, uh, you know, that was um, uh, you know on background, and um, he said uh, he said, well, here's the thing: um, the problems that you're talking about are hard problems to solve, and what we like to do is sit around in a conference room and figure out clever ways of getting people to spend more minutes a day on Facebook, and uh, so that's kind of just our culture. We really like that and, we, and the problems that you're asking us to think about are messy and complicated and involve all of these judgments about what's, you know, better information, worse information. Uh, we just like to stick to the easy stuff. And then he actually described something pretty amazing to me about uh, one of these techniques, uh, which was, uh, he said, well, you know, so for example, we know that if you're a woman and we show you that your friends who are women have uploaded photos of themselves recently, you're likely to upload a photo of yourself in the next month. And if uh, you upload a photo of yourself, then your male friends are likely to comment on it. And if your male friends comment on it, then they're likely to use Facebook more for the next several months. Um, and so what they actually do 
uh, is run that in reverse, and they say, okay, uh, Eli hasn't been using Facebook as much as we'd like him to, so we're going to find one of his female friends, show her pictures of her friends so that she uploads a photo so that he comments <laughs> on it, so that he stays on Facebook more. Which, if you think about it, it's just kind of, it, it, it's like amazing social engineering for no purpose other than <laughs> to keep people using Facebook a little bit more. Um, but I was pretty astounded by that. Yeah. Um, well, Google and Bing do in different ways, but they both have the same basic uh, sort of uh, aspect. And, and um, together that's about uh, 80, 90 percent of market share depending on where you are. Um, so uh, effectively, yes, although there are search engines that don't do this. There's a search engine called DuckDuckGo uh, that is fine and is actually using the book to try to get some publicity and stir up a fight about this. Uh, uh, um, but, uh, you know, the, it, m mostly this is the way that things are going because you do just see this sort of uptick in, in clicks. Yeah. Yeah, um, I think there's sort of two two places. So one is, I think in general, we sort of need a reset on uh, the laws around personal information because uh, in the United States at least, and as I understand it, sort of de facto, those are the laws that are controlling even for people here uh, when it comes to the behavior of these companies. Um, the... Uh, you know, the, the laws were written 40 years ago, and they just don't contemplate, I mean, a world in which you could click something on a website over here and it would reveal something very personal about you. It would be sold to this website over here that without your knowing it would then use it to create, you know, that, that's just not, I mean, the web doesn't even exist. Uh, so uh, I think laws that sort of reestablish some sense of personal control and transparency when it comes to the collection and use of that data, I think, you know, that's, that's sort of one piece of it that will give a lever. And then I do think that the other piece, though, is, um, you know, actually making people aware of this in the first place because I don't know that many people who, given the choice between sort of Google subjective personalized and Google authoritative, everyone seeing the same thing, I think most people actually would choose the authoritative Google if they knew that, the, that they weren't seeing that in the first place. There's sort of the sense of vertigo that a lot of people have when they find that out in the first place because they think of it as this sort of reliable, I'm getting the same results as everyone else kind of thing. And so I think, um, you know, part of uh, what I'm hoping to do with the book is to create this kind of, uh, you know, feed literacy or algorithmic literacy that, that then creates the demand for products that actually sort of treat people like adults and give them the, some control over these things. Great. Great. Thanks, everybody. Thank you so much. You can find out more about Eli's book 
as well as comment on this episode and listen to many more at thepenguinpodcast.co.uk. And remember, you can email us at podcast at penguin.co.uk and we're on Twitter as at Penguin Podcast. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to The Penguin Podcast.